Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. There are some communities in America that are so impactful, their influences crosses all geographical borders. Treme in New Orleans, Oakland in California, and of course, Harlem in New York City. There's a reason Harlem is associated with black excellence. During the Harlem Renaissance alone, so much black talent came out of there. Full disclosure, this episode was supposed to be about gentrification and the changing faces of Harlem and other black neighborhoods, specifically how gentrification also hurts businesses. And we will talk about that next week. But this week, I wanna share a history you may not know. Harlem wasn't always a black community, but standing along 125th Street, it's almost hard to imagine what it would have sounded like or looked like hundreds of years ago when the Lenape indigenous people walked the once wooded areas. The Dutch arrived in the 1600s. After colonizing Lower Manhattan, they moved to the north and named the new area New Harlem. The English came a few years later. They tried to change the name to Lancaster, but literally no one would call it that. Harlem became farmland, but in the 1700s it transformed again, this time into a vacation getaway for rich people, and mansions started going up. For Frederick Douglass, uh, Ralph Ellison, and uh, Harriet Tubman. John Reddick is a cultural historian. He says there are enslaved Africans working for these rich New Yorkers in Harlem, but slavery was different than in the South. South was really industrial plantations. You lived in a concentrated area, the sun rose, and you were taken out to the fields. It was fields where you lived. Where in New York, households might have a cook, might have a nanny for the kids. And those people navigated the city. So, you know, the maid would go to the market and buy for the household. Not saying they're equal in terms of rights, but there was this sort of equal visibility of blacks moving around a place like New York. So there was a kind of dynamic of movement in New York that probably didn't exist, you know, in terms of the South. Fast forward to the late 1800s, there are plans for an elevated train line to connect Harlem with the lower parts of Manhattan. This causes major real estate speculation. Developers believed white families would move to Harlem because they would be surrounded by greener spaces and working men would have quick commutes downtown. So they started building. A lot. 
Beautiful row houses and apartment buildings are filling Harlem, but there was oversupply, like way too many apartments. You may be wondering, where do the black people live? through New York's history in various neighborhoods. At one point, it was Land of the Blacks, which is now the West Village. There was also Five Points, which is now Chinatown, and of course, Seneca Village, which later became Central Park. There was also Weeksville, where many black families fled to during the draft riots. But by the 1870s, black families in Manhattan are mostly in their tenderloin in San Juan, which would now be Midtown. Historians say black communities paid the highest rents in the city, yet made the least and had the worst housing. And this practice of overpaying continued when black families do finally start moving to Harlem. Enter a black man named Philip Payton Jr. who becomes a real estate agent in 1900. Most white landlords didn't rent to black families because they feared it would drive tenants out and lower property values. But they've got all these empty apartments in Harlem because they seriously overspeculated how many families would move there. Philip told landlords they could fill their properties with black renters and the black renters would pay higher rents because there's so few places they could live. Landlords eventually accepted. So Philip helps black families find what was at the time better housing, but he also participated in this very anti-black act of overcharging black renters. Philip was so impactful in Harlem, he becomes known as the father of Harlem. John says the Capitol Projects downtown also pushed African-American families north. Two groups are affected by this in big ways. The building of Penn Station displaced the blacks that are in the San Juan Hill. A lot of black institutions were in that area and residents in that area, what they called the Tenderloin area on the west side. And on the lower east side, Jews are being made to move from their neighborhood because of the building of the Williamsburg Bridge and the Manhattan Bridges. You have to widen streets to get to the bridge for the trains to come into Penn Station. They need railroad yards. So it's not just the building, but it's all this other infrastructure support that's taking out block after block of tenement uh, housing. And both of those groups start to look at Harlem. Harlem was the second largest Jewish community at the turn of the century, only second to the Lower East Side. He says the two groups are coalescing around ragtime and music culture. What I call the hip-hop era of uh, ragtime is, you know, something that's captivating both young Jewish composers and performers and black originators of the music. And they're starting to come together in Harlem and in two distinct groups. Now the sort of well-to-do group are in their acting, particularly around theater. And then the poor groups are living under the elevated and those sort of neighborhoods. So by the time we get to the Renaissance, it's really a second generation of players that are engaged with one another. If we didn't have the church, is that one place we could go to and sing in the way we wanted to sing about what we wanted to sing about, you know, to nurse our oratory in ways that would, you know, aggregate our political power and all of that. In 1911, St. Philip's Episcopal Church moved to Harlem. It had been in Five Points since 1809, which is when it was founded by free black people. Its new location was built by the state's first black licensed architect. He also built Madam C.J. Walker's mansion in Irvington on Hudson. St. Philip's Episcopal was very influential, so other black churches followed its lead and moved to Harlem. Mother Amy Zion had been in Seneca Village, for example, and it 
moves and, and it still has a church in Harlem. While Harlem's black population is growing, black residents still face discrimination in the neighborhood. Some stores would allow them to shop, but wouldn't hire anyone black. And some entertainment venues hired black workers, but wouldn't allow anyone black to come in as a customer. In 1914, the Apollo, which had a different name at the time, opened its doors, but not to black people. This was not an anomaly. The clubs, like the Cotton Club and the clubs we really think about, were segregated. You know, there were black performers, but they weren't black in the audience. People were coming to Harlem to see everything that was happening, from European royalty to bankers from downtown. Curious about the black culture, we're coming to see what's going on. We're now at the point in history where Harlem really becomes Harlem due to several reasons. One, Jim Crow is rampant in the South. This causes the Great Migration, where millions of African Americans left the South and headed to Northern and Midwest cities. They were looking for opportunity and, frankly, a place to raise their families without being in a constant state of fear. There was still fear, but at least it wasn't constant. Two, World War I ends, and black soldiers are returning home wanting to be treated how white vets are. Three, historically black colleges and universities are producing black talent. In addition, black Caribbean people are coming into the country, and lastly, political activity is brewing, like Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. Every time I saw those Marcus Garvey pictures and he's in his Lord Nelson's hat in the parades down the avenue, I realized that those photographs to the rest of America the Caribbean were like Ralph Lauren ads. He wasn't driving down streets where the backdrop looked like shanty towns or anything. The architecture was the architecture of empire. It was Most of it was built in the 1890s and mimicking the broad boulevards of Europe. And so as a backdrop, Harlem really offered him this sense that, you know, a visual that could promote this kind of place of uh, a cosmopolitan community. All of these things contribute to the Harlem Renaissance, the political and cultural movement that made a New York City neighborhood the center for black art. Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Josephine Baker, the list goes on. It was a cultural revolution, and prohibition didn't stop it any more than it stopped rich people from being able to drink. They built into the system of ways for wealthy people to stock their private, you know, wine cellars and stuff with alcohol. The country was very conservative in this sort of puritanical sense of the country. And so that's one side of the country, just like we're seeing now. And then it was the other side of the country that where the mayor of New York was coming up to Harlem to drink, and speakeasies were, like, kind of tucked away. In 1934, the Apollo opened its doors to black people for the first time. And now movies are competing with live theater, and they're trying to figure out, like, what's going to be movie theater, what's going to be maybe theater and movies, they're trying to figure out the programming. And Harlem's become predominantly African-American, and Schiffman's thinking about how to program now for a targeted black audience. The Apollo, I feel, is like the best of us. And that didn't go unnoticed. The Apollo really becomes the sort of dominant theater of black talent. White artists would come up and see these shows. And back then, before there was TV or anything, they could steal your jokes and your routine. You'd have no idea. Harlem was also a place of refuge for black queer communities. It may not have been perfect, but it was home. Gay rights icon and entertainer Stormy DeLavery was part of a show that often played at the Apollo. By the... I guess the late 50s, early 60s, they're, they're doing, they have a show that comes there called the Jewel Box Review, which is uh, a drag 
performance show that's really like over the top. It was sort of like the Rockets, the on the boards from Thanksgiving to Christmas. This was a show that sort of attracted families and it was like an over the top uh, performance in terms of like imitating prominent women figures so they would you know, do a riff on Eartha Kitt or a Josephine Baker in drag. And so it was a performer named Storme was part of that. She was a woman playing the MC, and she prided herself on doing imitation of a prominent uh, Billy Eckstein performer who was a prominent sort of romantic singer, a black romantic singer of, of the period. Activism is also part of Harlem's story. The neighborhood launched major political careers like Adam Clayton Powell Jr. and Malcolm X. And you see that same energy today, especially as local politicians fight to protect residents from displacement through gentrification. But what does this future of Harlem look like, especially considering all the previous changes? Well, John is hoping its future is found in its past. That's what I want the energy of the Harlem Renaissance. It doesn't have to be exactly like it. I don't want it to be exactly like it. I want it to be the 21st century version of that energy. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond Black History Month. If you're enjoying the series, please rate, review, and subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the Odyssey app. Beyond Black History Month is a special production of WCBS News Radio 880 and 1010 Wins. Big thanks to producers Jill Webb, Dempsey Pillot, and Andy Egan Thorpe. Tim Sheld is the WCBS 880 brand manager, and Ben Meverack is the 1010 Wins brand manager. And I'm Femi Redwood. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? 
Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.